Uh, if you don't know, my name is Glenn, and I was just uh, out of town with my wife. We went, someone uh, sent us down to the Billy Graham Center in North Carolina to do a pastor conference retreat. So we got to go down there to North Carolina and see this place. It's the Billy Graham Center. It's 1,200 acres of just this wooded mountains. It's unbelievable. The, fa the fall was there, as is here, and the leaves were changing, and it was just um, idyllic. And the, the woodworking inside this lodge was amazing, like walnut everywhere. And I mean, we're talking a lot of money, spared no expense. And everyone was really nice there. I know it's the South, but I don't know how many times I heard, hey, God bless you, Glean. And I was just like blown away by how nice people were there. We actually felt out of place because we're not that nice. Like when I go down there, I'm just like, wow, I'm like making fun of the guy. He's got Donald Trump hair and, you know, all of that. But these people were really, really nice. Maybe that's what it's like to be a mature Christian. Um, I'm dragging Lori down. But um, all of that to say is that it was fun. Um, and we're glad to be back. And God challenged us and encouraged us both when we were down there. So, um, yeah. Um, you know that this passage isn't merely about wine, right? I mean, we see this, and there's a setting, and there's a wedding, and Jesus shows up there. But it's not really about just the wine. It's about, it's a metaphor. It's, a, it's about Jesus, right? John chapter 1 says that Jesus created everything. He created the people at the wedding. He created marriage. He created wine in the first place and water in the first place. But this metaphor, it's a reality and a truth that points to a deeper reality and truth. And it's not complicated. This passage is, Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what this is about. It's about Jesus changing this water into wine. He's changing something. And we know there's a law that sits underneath that. You see it everywhere you see Jesus. When Jesus changes something, that thing becomes the best. That's the metaphor. When everything that Jesus changes, it becomes right. It becomes the best. You see him touch a man's eyes and the eyes, the eyes start to see, right? You, you see in other places in Scripture where there, there's a dead child and, and Jesus touches them and what happens the best? They get life. That's what's happening here. This is the first of Jesus' miracles, and this story is about Jesus, and what happens is people believe because of this miracle that Jesus did. We'll, we'll get into the, the nuances of the metaphor, but I think that we need to know these things. Like, if you know these things and you walk out of here, I think you'll be okay. The first is that wine is a metaphor, and the first purpose of this metaphor is joy. Wine brings, brings joy. There's a, a deeper truth that wine points to, and that's deep joy. We'll talk about that. Wine is also purification, and we'll talk about that. It's the purpose of this is to show that Jesus can purify something. And then at the end, if we still make it, we're still alive, then hopefully the Holy Spirit will apply this to our church. But the main thesis, again, whatever Jesus touches, whatever he changes, it's changed for the best. So let me pray, and then we'll get into what happened in Cana. Father, would you change my words? 
so that they're the best. Would you allow us as hearers to forget what it is that you don't want us to think about, but to really latch on to, Lord, what it is that you want us to walk away with? Would you help us to understand what you're doing here, Lord Jesus? Would you open our eyes to see your goodness? Would you open our hearts to receive that goodness and that change? And would you help us, Lord, to glorify your son, Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. On the third day... So chapter 2 sees a little bit of a change. Chapter 1, we've preached through it, Randy and I, and we've gone through and talked about these witnesses about Jesus to witness about not only him being the creator of the world and how he made everything both for him with a purpose and through him by his power, but also we see him as the Son of God. We see him as the Messiah. We see him as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. All witness, all testimony about Jesus but chapter 2, it starts to turn. Jesus is actually going to start doing miraculous things. For what purpose? So that people might believe. Because when Jesus changes things, that's the natural outpouring is faith and belief. So on the third day, let's just pause there and find out where Jesus is at in this whole story. So the book of John was written as a testimony first of John the Baptist, but before that, we don't know from the book of John, but we know from other books that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And then in Matthew 4, it says, immediately the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness so he could be lied to by Satan for 40 days, starving out there, so that it's the inauguration of his ministry, so that God could use his son to set up this ministry of, of reconciliation and of redemption in this world. So Jesus comes back from that 40 days John sees him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sees him, and then on the third day, Jesus, after stealing some of John the Baptist's disciples just a few verses ago, goes to a wedding, and he's here in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to this wedding with his disciples, and he's about to do something miraculous. He's about to do what the Bible calls a sign. Now, these signs have a purpose. If you go to the end of the book of John, in John 20, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. This is the first one that was recorded. This is the first miracle that Jesus did that was publicly recorded but there was a lot of other stuff. I don't know what he was doing. He was walking around doing miracles, so many that they couldn't even write them all down. And John 21 says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. This is John the author who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every single one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did a lot of miracles. And they're important. Why? So that people might believe. John 20, 30, and 31. These signs are a clear evidence of his authority. These, these signs are a clear evidence of everything that was said in John chapter 1 about him being the Son of God, about him taking away the sins of the world, about him making and creating all things, about him, him having a purpose. 
These, all these signs are a clear evidence of his deity, but John the author doesn't want us to be able to explain them away in any other way than Jesus having miraculous powers. He wants it to be that there's no other explanation by which you could see water get changed into wine other than Jesus having miraculous power. He wants us to see that, to witness that, so that we may believe. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry right here. He inaugurates it with a sign, with power. He got baptized. He was out in the wilderness. He comes back, and he starts doing miraculous things. So that's where we're at, a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus shows up to a party, a place of fun and joy, a wedding. Now, this would have been a really important uh, event for this family, Right? They show up in Cana, which is a small town outside of another small town. Family and friends would have been there. I don't know, 25, 50 people. We don't know. But all we do know is that these people who were closest to Jesus witnessed his first inaugural uh, power. They were disinterested parties. They had no skin in this game. They just saw Jesus turn this water into wine. So Jesus comes to this wedding to inaugurate it, and he does it at a place that's important. And whatever Jesus changes, whatever he touches, whatever he gets to the place where he is involved, that thing creates belief. So here he is at a wedding, and he is the one who created wedding. He is going to touch this wedding. He is going to change this marriage. So much so, look at Ephesians 5.22, that after God touches Marriage, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Usually we stop there and we get all up in a tizzy, but then when we look at even as Christ is the head of the church, wow, that's different. So when Christ touches the church, when he touches marriage, he makes it a metaphor for his church. We are his bride, his body. He himself is our savior He's using a wedding just to show his power. He's using a, a wedding to show that everything that he touches, everything that he changes, it, it creates belief. So Mary was there. His mother, was she serving? I don't know, possibly a family relation, but we know that she is somehow like in this thing, and she's watching all of the things going. She's watching to make sure that people's glasses are full, and she's serving and all of that, and she's at this wedding now, there's something that starts to happen is when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, okay? So this has implications. It's got all sorts of spiritual implications, which we'll get to, but just the very implication of showing up at a wedding and they run out of wine, that's a pretty bad thing. That's a, it's a conflict that needs to be dealt with, and it's bad on multiple levels. So just to give you an idea um, a bridegroom would spend a year, after he asked his woman to marry him, he would spend a year getting his house built for them. He would get everything ready for them, and this was to do a couple of things. One, it was to give her a place to live and give them a place to live as a family, up to a year, sometimes even more, depending on his ability to buy supplies and all of that to build his house. But he's building this house. He's building this place where they're going to live. He's building up to this wedding feast 
where he is going to be taking over everything. So he would work really, really hard to get money, to get supplies, to put together not only a huge feast, which would last for seven days, but to build a house for his wife. So all eyes are on the bridegroom to see how's this party going to go. I think this should be reinstated. Man, I got three girls. I want to know, is this dude going to be able to like take care of my women, my, my kids as their women, or is he going to just be like, well, I'll rent us an apartment, and what he means by that is that you're going to pay half and that type of thing. Like, this is what we have reduced marriage to. It's like, the, back in the day, it was like, we take this seriously. We're going to do this thing. We are, going to, we are going to build a, a, a house and a family, and this wedding celebration was to kick that off. Seven days. We don't know um, when it ran out, but if it's on the third day, that seems pretty early that because that's the, actually the first day of the wedding. seems pretty early that the wine would run out and all of the dads in the room were like, uh-huh, see, I told you. Like, you need to be able to take care of her and you ran out. So this is a major catastrophe. This bridegroom has spent a year getting this ready and the wine runs out. But there is a deeper meaning to the wine running out. One, there's going to be no water, and two, there's going to be no joy. Okay, let me explain that. No water and no joy. Wine was used in that day for two different things. For joy, right? We drink wine, you start to feel better, you have joy. That's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for that. But more importantly, at the very beginning, I want to talk about wine being purification. So in the day when Jesus was at this wedding, the water had no purification. They didn't have the, the modern purification techniques that we have now. Like if you go to Israel now, you're not going to get some stomach bacteria or something like that because they have purification plants. The same with water here. But back then, they didn't have that. So what they would do is they would ferment wine... And when you ferment wine, it becomes an alcohol content in it, and that alcohol is then used to purify the water. Like, think of, go to Mexico, don't drink the water, right? That's what was happening back then. There's bacteria in the water. There's water that they can't just drink out of a stream because it's going to hurt them, give them stomach problems. But we mix alcohol in and do heavy-duty cleaning today still. Think mineral spirits or isopropyl alcohol or any kind of gel that you put on your hands. It's got some alcohol content. Alcohol is there as a cleaning agent for the water. So water, on the other hand, was not pure. It was something that needed to be purified. They had no refrigeration. They had no filtering process. Came out of the ground. It was not pure to drink. So in that day, they would mix the wine with the water. You had to mix it just about right. Because if you mix too much wine, everybody's dancing with a lampshade in the corner. If you mix too much water, you get stomach distension. You get some sort of bacteria because you don't have enough wine in there to kill the bacteria. So there was something missing from this wedding party because the wine ran out. No joy and no water. This is a big deal. Like, we got four more days in our feast, maybe, and we have no water to drink. This is not going to go well. The purifying uh, idea within wine is not a new thing. When you look at the Old Testament, wine was used in a lot of offerings 
to be used as a purifying agent in offerings in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Numbers. They're all filled with verses along with the offering to Lord, mix in some wine as purification. Even Ezra 6, 9 through 10, and whenever whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let it be given to them day by day without fail, so they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. So wine is pointing to purification, okay? This is not difficult. God is holy and he's in heaven. When we sacrifice things to him, they need to be pure or he doesn't accept them. Why? Because he's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who, they're screaming that right now in heaven, right? Purification, God desires and he demands purity when it comes to sacrifices to him. In Malachi 1, they would use lambs that were some blind, some with matted hair. Uh, they would use not the best one, right? And God rejected those. Here they are at the altar and they pull up with a, a sheep that's got a wooden leg or something like that or listening to country music, like they're really screwed up ones. And God says, I don't accept them. Why? Because he is holy. His character is without blemish. His character is without any impurity. Malachi 3, God says, look, your lambs that you're bringing, I cannot accept them. Behold, I send my messenger. Oh, interesting language. And he will prepare the way for me. Oh, that sounds like John the Baptist. This is Malachi 3. This is way before John 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus just shows up out of the wilderness. I think we know who he's talking about. But then listen to how Malachi talks about Jesus. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when Jesus appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings then in righteousness to the Lord. That's when God starts to accept sacrifices. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former Years. Can you imagine how God feels when he sees his son start to inaugurate his ministry? He's going to move toward the cross. He is going to be the pleasing sacrifices, sacrifice for God for all of eternity. We're talking thousands of years where people have been sacrificing to God, but it has not been pleasing to him. Even the best sheep, even the ones that are without uh, blemish, so to speak, they're still not Jesus. They're still not God's son, the one who is a refiner, a purifier like soap as a refiner's fire. So God is looking at Jesus and he's like, I am well pleased because finally my holiness is going to be upheld and championed and I will be able to be pleased with their sacrifices because of his righteousness toward me. Everything that Jesus touches, everything that he moves toward, everything that he changes it brings perfection. It brings belief. This wine ran out, and it's pointing to Jesus. 
That meant they're not going to be able to drink water or wine. This is devastating. It's kind of a big deal. But secondly, so the first thing we need to understand, walk out of here knowing that wine meant purification, but secondly, wine meant joy. Joy. Wine goes through a fermentation process, and it becomes jiggle juice, right? People start dancing when they have wine. It becomes joy juice. Have you ever been in a wedding, and you see somebody who gets caught up in the moment, and they start dancing? But it's not until they feel joy that they start dancing. And unfortunately, in our times, we need to have wine in order to feel joy, right? When you feel joy, you're no longer self-aware. When you feel joy, you no longer focus on yourself or fears. And God has given us wine to show us his joy. He's given us wine to show us what it's like to not live with our inhibitions intact. Psalm 104, 15 tells us that wine makes our heart glad, right? We always talk about wine in the negative sense, but God gave it to us as a, as a metaphor for what it means to have joy in Him. Bread is for laughter. Wine gladdens our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Isaiah 5, this makes me laugh. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Everybody knows the guy who's looking for joy, but there's not righteousness in it, right? They're just looking to get hammered. And that's where the joy illustration breaks down because we, we coin terms like beer goggles, like everything looks differently when you have a bunch of alcohol in you. But God is wanting us to see that real joy can happen. And he wants to show it through us, something that's inside of us that gives us great joy. Do you see where this is going? There's something changed inside of us that gives us great joy. We're going to get to it, but be looking for the metaphor that's underneath this. And that is simply that whatever Jesus changes, it gets better. It gets to the best. So the wine runs out and Mary tells Jesus, Listen to his response. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. This seems a little bit like a rebuke, right? Like a mild pushback. See, I think that what's happening here, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. Okay, think about it in the context of where Jesus is at, sitting at, at this wedding. He just came in from the wilderness. His father has told him, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit rested on him as a dove, showing that he is the son of God and he's been called the son of God. And he knows in the future there's this thing called my hour. And we look at that in the book of John in uh, 7, 8, 12, 13, 17. He lives here in his death, he's thinking about that moment when he goes to the cross and he calls it my hour. And I think he's looking at that and saying, wow, this is very heavy. There is a point when I'm going to die. And you're talking to me about wine that ran out at a wedding. And the other thing that I think of when I'm thinking of Jesus and he's sitting there is, what do single people think about when they're at a wedding? right? They're thinking about their own wedding. Like, what's it going to look like when I'm the bridegroom? Or what's it going to look like when I'm standing at the altar with my husband-to-be? What's my party going to look like? 
And I think that Jesus is looking forward past his hour to this point in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Jesus is looking forward to his own wedding, I think. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her clothes with fine linen, bright and pure. Bright and pure. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus has another wedding that's on his mind. He has another place where he's going to go and, uh, and see this true joy and true sanctification, true purity happen. The hour of his death and resurrection in Hebrews, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, right? And went to the right hand of the Father in heaven. What's happening here is that Jesus is changing his focus from his earthly mom to his heavenly father. You see this throughout the book of John where he is focused on his father, bringing his father joy, bringing him uh, just purity of heart, bringing him the righteousness that he deserves. He is holy and he is in heaven and Jesus knows that and he wants to please him and he is pleasing because of his character and he's looking at that. And he says to me, these words are the true words of God moves in this place where I'm looking to see God and his truth elevated and loved. I want for my Father in heaven to be satisfied. Because whatever Jesus touches, it gets cleaned. It has great joy. So, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But then his mother kind of bows out and says, well, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus moves toward redemption. Oh, this is where it gets good. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Okay, let's just pause there. Jesus says to them, fill them with water. What is water? It's impure. But he says, these pots are for the Jewish rites of purification. So he is telling the gospel right in this area. He's saying these, the, the Old Testament law is just filled with water. It has no purification. It has no ability to bring righteousness and holiness to God's name and fill them with water. Fill them So they fill them to the brim. And when you look at the stone water jars in 2 Corinthians, it talks about we are jars of clay. He's moving to a gospel presentation right in this place. You and I, jars of clay. Potter, the, uh, in the Old Testament, it talks about, will the, potter say to, will the pot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? That we are formed by God, that we are of the potter's hand, that we are jars of clay filled up with what? With unpurified water, right? This is the beauty of the gospel that Jesus is saying Six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Like, oh, that's cute. You guys are filled with nasty water with amoebas and, and stomach problems and, and all of that. That's cute. That's your purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Said, fill them with water. So they filled them up to the brim. But then he said, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now listen to this. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though they knew, the master said, everyone serves the good wine first and then people have drunk freely. But then they bring the poor wine out after they've been sloshed with the, with the wine, started to become drunk, then they give them the cheap stuff. But you have kept the good wine up until now. God is showing his glory in the gospel right here. He is showing that when Jesus touches and changes something, it becomes the best. It becomes filled with joy and righteousness. These stone water pots became filled with joy and righteousness because Jesus changed that water from amoeba-filled water that is not clean to something that has cleansing properties and has joy-filling properties. This is the gospel. Whatever Jesus touches, it gets filled. It gets cleaned. Jesus sends the Spirit to fill us with joy and purification. We'll get on to that later on in chapter, uh, starting with chapter 3, chapter 14, 15, and 16 of the book of John. But right now, it's a metaphor for us to see that Jesus is touching this wine. He is touching this water, and it becomes pure, and it becomes something that fills us with joy and righteousness. And so how did his disciples respond? Look at verse 11. After this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in me. I've been asking for how God wants us to apply this here at Redeemer Church. And without being specific, I think it's pretty safe to say that our joy has been robbed in some aspects of Redeemer Church. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's fine. Um, we can talk about it later if you would like, but there's just joy that's missing from our church. And I think it's because there's some righteousness that's missing from our church as well. And the way that I see this is praying, you can disagree with me, but there's not unity in our church. It's not a love for one another in our church. And it grieves me, and I know it grieves you guys, that there's not a love for each other in our church. And I think the way to respond, that Jesus has changed this church into wine, joy and righteousness. He has done the work, but for some reason we're not living into it. And I think the one key verse that he's brought up is Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I'm just going to pause there. Just go to him or her. I don't think we do that. And it's bringing out a lack of joy in us. And you and I, we have neighbors. We understand what it's like when people don't go to one another and show them their fault. They just talk about them. They just gossip. They just slander. They just, ah, just talk, 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 talk. Jesus 
The one who has changed us says this, if your brother sins against you, go to him, show him his fault, just you and him alone. Don't go and talk about him or her to a bunch of other people that's going to kill this church. Jesus says that a church, a kingdom divided will fall. Unless we talk to one another, unless we go to one another, unless we don't gossip, we don't slander, we actually have the conversation with one another, just laying it out there, we will not experience joy, and it will kill this church. Some of you are trying this, and some of you are offended at this but it just doesn't belong here. Church divided will fall, and I don't want this church to fall. Why would God say Redeemer is pleasing to him if we refuse to talk to one another? And maybe this isn't you, and maybe you're in the place that I have been going to people, but you hear other people talking about other people. What's your response? Are you saying to them, it sounds to me like you need to go and talk with them. It sounds like you've got some anger built up. It sounds like you need some clarification. Will you go and talk with them? That's unifying language. That's going to help build joy in our place. That's going to build us up. Our marriages are filled with not speaking the truth to one another. Our coworker relationships are filled with us not talking, speaking the truth to one another. I understand that. It's everywhere, and the culture just does not celebrate this. The culture is just talk, 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 talk more. But that doesn't belong here. We are in God's bride. Please don't stand by and watch God's bride get a black eye by someone talking about someone else and not talking to them. Do what you can to help this bring unity. We've been filled with new wine. We, he has given us everything that we need. He has, he has changed us inside. Let's live into it. Jesus came for purification and joy. This is the first First miracle. So to me, it seems like it's pretty important. Purification and joy. I want to see that reverberating through this place. If you guys have something against me, come and talk to me, man. I'm going to humble myself and try and reconcile with you, but I've got to know what you're thinking. And it's the way with everybody in our servant leaders. It's the way with everybody in our church. Anything else is like me saying, I'm mad at you, but you know what? Uh, someone else told me this about you, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know it's infuriating. It's just divisive. It's got to stop. It's Jesus' bride. We uphold her, we love her, and we honor her because Jesus does. Ephesians 4.11, there is joy at the end, can you imagine 
how like one minute you're afraid to look at that person because you have all this stuff built up, but can you imagine the moment when you actually have the conversation with them, how things get cleared up and you actually want to see them and you want to be unified with them. Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for ministry. That's you guys. For building up the body of Christ, to build this thing up, to build up the bride until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Can you believe that that's something that's there that can be attained? Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How do we do this? Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. This is why Jesus changed the water into wine. It's why Jesus is changing our hearts, why he has indwelt us and why he has changed us because everything that Jesus changes, it brings out the best. It brings out belief. Whatever Jesus touches gets cleansed and filled with joy. Let's have him touch us in this place. I went a little bit long. We have 15 minutes still to pray. Um, Prayer prompts, we'll put them up on the screen. First one is pretty simple. It's Matthew 18, 15. How can we bring unity to our church? that God would cause me to follow it, that God would cause me to be helpful when I hear someone else not following Matthew 18, 15. We're declaring war against satanic elements when we pray this prayer. Satan wants to see this place just destroyed. He wants us to be at each other's throats. He wants us to crumble down. He wants to see us fall. But this... This is declaring war. This is following Jesus who changed Redeemer Church. We have been changed. Let's live in it. That's the first prayer prompt. Second one is that we would just bring glory to Jesus for being the perfect lamb as seen in Malachi 3. That it would cause us belief when we worship Jesus, when we honor him, when we submit to him as our pure sacrifice, as the refiner, as the one who takes away and roots out things that need to be refined. Let me pray, and then we'll break out into groups of three to five and declare war. So, Father, would you lead us? Would you help us? Would you give us the ears to hear when someone's not living out of the righteousness and the joy that you've given us, Lord Jesus, would you help us to be unified in this, to build one another up, to help one another, to love one another, that our church would be so filled with love 
that not only would people outside the church see it and be like, wow, that's different, but that, Lord, you would see it and be like, yes, yes, yes. In Jesus' name we pray through the Spirit. Amen.